We are closer to the time when the days begin to move those of us in the northern hemisphere back to longer periods of sunshine. In fact, the winter solstice is now two weeks away and is calculated to occur at precisely 10.59 a.m. on December 21st, 2021. Such precision is refreshing in an era of uncertainty. And while Charlottesville community engagement may not be the most precise of informational newsletters, there certainly is an attempt to be thorough. Today is December 7th, 2021, and I'm your host, Sean Tubbs. On today's program, Virginia receives over $85 million in the latest carbon credit auction. A community group gets a look at the next phase of Habitat for Humanity's development at Southwood. And the Charlottesville City Council gets a budget update and decides to donate the Lee statue for future artistic purposes. In today's first patreon Field shout-out, WTJU 91.1 FM invites you to tune in this week for the annual Classical Marathon. It's a round-the-clock celebration of classical music specially programmed for your listening pleasure. Throughout the week, there will be special guests, including Oratorio Society Director Michael Slon, UVA Professor E. Jen Fang, Charlottesville Symphony Conductor Ben Rouse, early music scholar David McCormick, and more. Visit WTJU.net to learn more and to make a contribution. Charlottesville City Council had a full meeting last night that will take a few newsletters to get through. We begin at the end with a vote to remove one of three statues removed in January. We begin at the end with a vote on the future of one of three statues removed in July. Here's City Councilor Heather Hill reading the motion. Be resolved by the Council of the City of Charlottesville the statue of Robert E. Lee hereby donated and ownership transferred to the Jefferson School African American Heritage Center, a charitable institution organization in accordance with the provisions of Virginia Code Section 15.2-953. This disposition is final. Vice Mayor Cena McGill was not present at any point during the virtual meeting, citing a family emergency. To read more on the statue and the center's desire to melt it down to create new public works of art, check out Ginny Bixby's article in today's Daily Progress. The further disposition of the Stonewall Jackson and Lewis Clark and Sacagawea statues will wait for another day, possibly on December 20th. The vote on the Lee statue took place after midnight. Council had begun their day at a work session that began at 4 p.m., at which they discussed reform of the Housing Advisory Committee and the way projects are selected for funding through the Charlottesville Affordable Housing Fund. I'll get to that last item in a future installment of the show. Also in the work session, Council learned how the city fared as the books for fiscal year 2021 closed. Readers and listeners may recall there had been a concern the city would have a shortfall. Chris Cullinan is the city's director of finance. I'm pleased to report that we finished uh, fiscal year 2021. The general fund had a had surplus revenues of about $5.5 million dollars. Cullinan reminded Council that the pandemic hit just as the budget for fiscal year 2021 was being finalized. At the time, there was uncertainty about the long-term financial impact, but the shutdowns immediately affected the city's meals and lodging tax collection. Property and sales tax collection performed a bit better than expected. The city also didn't spend as much as expected. Several of our larger departments had vacancy savings. 
uh, through the course of the year, as well as reduced levels of service um, or closed facilities uh, during COVID. And that resulted in expenditures being less than expected. Cullinan said the $5.5 million does not include any federal funding through the CARES Act or the American Rescue Plan. Those COVID relief funds are accounted for separately. But what it did allow us to do was, instead of utilizing our general fund dollars to do certain eligible projects or eligible activities, we will use the CARES money instead. So that CARES money stepped in the place of the city's own revenue. Staff will return to council on December 20th with a suggested year-end appropriation. Cullinan said they will make two recommendations that will affect the next year's budget preparation. One involves a $6.7 million economic downturn fund that was set aside for a reserve fund at the beginning of the pandemic. We didn't have to tap into that money uh, through the course of the fiscal year. And so that $6.7 million is outside of the 5.5. Cullinan said that $6.7 million had been taken by withholding cash funds that would have gone to the Capital Improvement Program. Now, staff is recommending returning that money back to the capital budget. And obviously, as we all know, there are some there are several large uh, capital needs, both in the upcoming year, but in the five-year plan. Outgoing Charlottesville Mayor Nakaya Walker said she would prefer the money be used in some other way, especially if there is the possibility of funding coming from the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, as well as potential future legislation. And I, I don't know if CIP is where we should be considering allocating that with the fact that there may be funding coming in the future. Outgoing City Councilor Heather Hill said Council has agreed to proceed with a $75 million investment in upgrading Buford Middle School and would support Cullinan's recommendation. I think that any any contributions we can put into the CIP right now, I think, are, are going to be needed and um, if we're going to be able to do any of our other priorities. And again, this is where those funds were intended to be in the fiscal year when this pandemic began. For the second recommendation, staff proposes that the $5.5 million surplus be used for employee compensation adjustments, including a one-time bonus related to the pandemic, as well as a 6% mid-year salary increase to try to retain employees in a tight job market. Deputy City Manager Sam Sanders said the bonuses will cost $3 million and the salary increase will cost $2.5 million. The plan is to make it effective in January. So this would be uh, immediate uh, relief to folks seeing an increase in pay beginning January of 22. And then we are already looking forward to how do we sustain this for going forward and feel comfortable that the projections uh, for revenues are such that we can sustain this uh, as a permanent increase. Before the meeting, Walker had directed staff to see if they could find a way to vote to approve this before January 6th, when the second reading would be held. Walker will not be on council at that time. Sanders said that at the time, he did not know yet, but staff would be looking on whether they could do so under Virginia law. It's based on the size of uh, the appropriation, I believe, that dictates how many days were required. So we'll be able to take a look at that in the morning, because I did get that later today. We need to dig into that to find out if we can move faster. Under state code, localities that make a budget amendment in excess of 1% of the total budget must hold a public hearing, which must be advertised seven days in advance. Take a look at section 15.2-2507 yourself and let me know your interpretation. 
The fiscal year 21 budget was $192.2 million. One quick news story before the break and a long segment. The latest auction of carbon emission credits held by the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, REGI, will result in Virginia receiving another $85.6 million to help fund programs to mitigate the impact of climate change. Virginia joined the program in the summer of 2020 and became the first state in the southeast to join the compact. Through 54 auctions, Reggie has brought in $4.7 billion from power companies. Here's a section from the Reggie website. Reggie is the first market-based cap-and-invest regional initiative in the United States. Within the Reggie states, fossil fuel-fired electric power generators with a capacity of 25 megawatts or greater are required to hold allowances equal to their CO2 emissions over a three-year control period. Virginia has now brought in $227.6 million from the program across four auctions. Around half of the funding goes to pay for flood control and mitigation initiatives. In October, Governor Ralph Northam announced Charlottesville would receive $153,000 in Reggie-funded grants to create a model of the city's portion of the Moores Creek watershed to assist with flood prevention. There's a link in the newsletter to an October 6, 2021 story I wrote on that. You're listening to Charlottesville Community Engagement, and it is time now for another subscriber-supported shout-out. Filmmaker Lorenzo Dickerson has traced the 100-year history of the libraries in the Charlottesville area, including a time when black patrons were restricted from full privileges. The film Free and Open to the Public explores the history of library service from the Jim Crow era until now. If you miss the premiere in November, there's an online screening followed by a question and answer period with Lorenzo Dickerson this Thursday at 7 p.m. Register at the Jefferson Madison Regional Library site to participate in this free event that's being run with coordination from the Albemarle Charlottesville Historical Society. Visit jmrl.org now to sign up. One very long segment about a very big development in the southern end of Albemarle County. Habitat for Humanity of Greater Charlottesville has filed an application to extend an existing rezoning application to cover all of the Southwood Mobile Home Park. The 5th and Avon Community Advisory Committee got a look at the details in a community meeting on November 18th. Rebecca Ragsdale is now the county planner who is administering the oversight of the first and second phases, taking over from Megan Nadustup, who now works as a planner for the firm Williams Mullen. But it does include 93.32 acres and is the remainder, or is rather the existing mobile home community, along with a couple smaller parcels. There's three parcels in total, and the uh, coded development uh, proposes a, a minimum of 531 units or up to a maximum of 1,000 units. There's also a request to allow up to 60,000 square feet of non-residential uses in this second phase. Speaking nearly three weeks ago, Ragsdale said the review was just getting underway. Lori Schweller is an attorney with Williams Mullen, and she provided additional details. Technically, this application is to amend the existing zoning approval granted by the Board of Supervisors in August of 2019. 
the current trailer park is located in the largest parcel right in the center. And the first development is happening outside that area to minimize disruption from development and construction in phase one as much as possible. Habitat purchased the 341 trailer Southwood Mobile Home Park in 2007 with the intent towards preserving affordable living spaces. The rezoning approved in phase one is to the county's neighborhood model district, which is intended to create walkable communities. As a neighborhood model development, the plan for phase one incorporated a block plan, logically organizing the areas of the development in accordance with the uses, forms, and density set out in the code of development. Density will range from green space at the lowest level of density upward through neighborhood, urban residential, neighborhood mixed use, urban density mixed use to neighborhood center special area in that area of the project designated for a center by the comprehensive plan. Phase two extends the code of development across the whole property. Dan Rosenzweig, Habitat's CEO, said the plan has been crafted with leadership from residents of Southwood. Not trying to get buy-in, but to elevate them to be the engineers and architects of their future. As such, uh, they created a form-based code that regulated the, the basic formal characteristics of particular blocks uh, in sync with the land itself, um, with the contours of the land and with the general pattern of development for the neighborhood. Rosenzweig said Habitat hopes to exceed the county's affordable housing requirements as it seeks to not displace existing residents. Uh, they all live in dramatically substandard housing on infrastructure that has failed. Um, and so to non-displace, um, we have to at least replace um, the amount of housing that's there, but that's not enough. We want to actually uh, overperform that uh, because there's such an acute shortage in the region. Rosenzweig said 50 units were proffered to be affordable in phase one, but that phase will now include 207 affordable units. That's in part because the Piedmont Housing Alliance is using low-income housing tax credits to subsidize rents in an apartment complex for households with families making between 30 and 80 percent of the area median income. There are 128 market unit rates in the first phase. So 62% of the units in phase one are affordable. Rosenzweig said residents have led the charge to make sure the neighborhood is mixed income. Uh, they really wanted to make sure that every block had a mixture of habitat homes and uh, market rate homes, so you can't tell the difference between the two. The number of units that will be built in the second phase is not yet known. Melissa Sims is the residential planning and design manager with Habitat. And based on the concept plan, we can build a minimum of 531 units, as Rebecca mentioned, but we hope to build closer to 1,000 units. So if we were able to build 1,000 units in phase two, this would result in a gross density of 10.71 dwelling units per acre, and then a net density of 13.57 dwelling units per acre. Sims said the total for the entire Southwood redevelopment would be a range of between a minimum of 681 units and a maximum of 1,450. One thing to note is that we are not building the maximum permitted units in phase one. We're building about 100 units less than um, what the phase one code of development would actually permit. The first phase allowed up to 50,000 square feet of non-residential space, but Sims said only up to 10,000 square feet will be built initially. So with that in mind, there will likely be about 70,000 square feet of non-residential space in Southwood phases one and two total. 
Sims said Habitat will guarantee that 231 of the housing units in the second phase will be affordable and that it will be enough to replace the existing trailers. Rosenzweig said it may take up to a decade to fully develop the park. After the presentation from Habitat, CAC Chair James Cathro asked several questions, including this one. What, uh, what happens after a family is, is sold an affordable rate home and they pay it off? Can they immediately sell it at market value? Is it their asset to use as they like? Or are there conditions and restrictions that come with that agreement? Great question. Um, yes, the the latter. That um, uh, there are there are thirty to forty years of deed restrictions on all habitat homes. We really tried in the affordable housing space. There are programs where all of the equity is invested in the. It, it's really about the unit, and then there are other affordable on the other side of the spectrum. It's all about the family. Habitat kind of splits the difference. That means Habitat has the right of first refusal if a unit is sold for a period of 40 years. They put it on the market, they get a bona fide offer, we have a week to match that offer. Um, additionally, there are significant incentives in the deed restrictions that, um, that incentivize families staying for a long period of time. Rosenzweig said Habitat of Humanity of Greater Charlottesville has sold about 300 homes, and all but a handful have remained either under original ownership, were passed on to other family members, or were repurchased by Habitat. In the first village under construction, Rosenzweig said Habitat is building 49 units and 40 families are in line to purchase them. The rest are being reserved for Southwood families who want to rent rather than purchase. A village two immediately adjacent to that will have another 25 habitat homes, uh, and then block 10 will have another 16. So there'll be another 41 habitat units. Fifth and Avon CAC members had questions about what habitat might contribute to address potential traffic congestion. Steve Schmidt is a traffic engineer with the Timmins Group, who is working with habitat on the project. Um, you're absolutely right. There's a significant amount of traffic out there today, and there's more coming. There was a recent study done by VDOT to, to look at the whole corridor to kind of identify improvements that are coming. One of the improvements we know is coming online is the, you know, the roundabout at Old Lynchburg and the county complex there. That, that's a funded improvement that will be in place in the, in, the, in the coming years. Schmidt was referring to a funded $7.26 million smart scale project in which Albemarle put up $2 million from the capital improvement program to help make this submission more attractive to the algorithm. The Commonwealth Transportation Board approved the project in June. Construction is not anticipated to begin until at least October of 2025, according to the application. Schmidt said VDOT and the county are both reviewing the traffic study. Another issue is the amount of additional children that will need spaces in the county school system. Schweller addressed those concerns and said the county is working to identify capital solutions that are in addition to the $6.25 million expansion of Mountain View Elementary that was added to the current capital budget earlier this year. What the schools are doing now is... Um, is, is doing a new master plan analysis and we'll have more recommendations uh, coming up. Um, those capacity solutions could include a new school, redistricting, grade level reconfigurations, 
Um, so we'll we'll wait to see what that um, study reveals. Schweller said it is also difficult to come up with an estimate of how many students will be generated by a mixed-use development with many types of housing. It's very difficult to estimate the number of students. If you have a thousand units, for example, in phase two, that could yield from 40 to 470 students, given the wide range of multipliers. Schweller said there had been initial talk about providing land at Southwood for a new school, but that didn't pan out. Dan had discussions with the schools uh, early on to offer a, a, a location for an elementary school. Um, and uh, the schools at that time decided that that was not, not what they wanted. So at this point, you know, design and planning have moved, have moved on. So there simply isn't room in, in phase two for a school site um, and, and still accommodating all the homes that need to be built there. Another CAC member asked if Habitat would sell some of the land for a school, especially if the development does generate more need for elementary school seats. Rosenzweig explained further why he would not proffer giving land over for a school. So you have to think about the purpose of mixed income. There are really two purposes of a mixed income community. One is to deconcentrate both wealth and poverty and create a neighborhood where people from all walks of life can live together. Because that's very different than the last 150 years of housing in our country, which has become more segregated and intentionally so. And so that's, that's one purpose. So if we take lots offline uh, for market rate sales, um, um, then, we, then we don't deconcentrate either poverty or wealth quite as much. Rosenzweig said the sale of market rate units subsidizes the affordable units and a balance has been worked out. He also said architecture used in current schools might not be compatible with the urban form of Southwood. It would take a little bit of a frame shift and uh, the way schools are planned uh, to create the form of a of a of an urban of a school that would fit the the context and character of this neighborhood, um, you know something like a you know traditional Albemarle County uh, ten acre school that has ball fields next to it that's sprawling that's on one level. Um, I I can't in any way shape or form seeing that fitting this neighborhood. But if the city, if the county were looking at something very creative like a three level school on three acres with minimum parking. As an example, Rosenzweig pointed to Rosa Parks Elementary School in Portland, Oregon, which was built in the mid-2000s as part of a public housing redevelopment project. The building is shared with the Boys and Girls Club and also functions as a community center. And so something like that, um, uh, if people were interested in thinking outside the box and you can pull some partners together, I think would be a huge addition. One community member who served on the Planning Commission from 2016 to 2019 noted that there appeared to be a lot of loose ends in the process about what would actually be built in the second phase. Here's Pam Riley. I'm trying to figure out what level of certainty that the community, the, the not just the legacy residents, but the overall community has, what level of certainty can be provided that the um, descriptions in the code of development by block um, are, are going to be built out in a way that um, those permitted uses and locations and appearance and everything, um, that there is some certainty about what we know is going to get built. 
Sims said the blocks that are listed in the code of development will clearly lay out what can be built where, but she said she would follow up with Riley to get on the same page. There's nothing new to report since November 18th, but this item will eventually go to the Planning Commission for a public hearing. I'll be there when it happens, eventually. And that is it for this edition of Charlottesville Community Engagement for December 7th, 2021. 80 years since Pearl Harbor, which is uh, something to remember still, even though the memory is fading, even in people like myself who were not born until 32 years after that event. It was a seismic one, and it certainly changed the course of history. A lot has happened in Charlottesville in the last few years, and Charlottesville Community Engagement is here to document it from the perspective of this particular journalist, me, Sean Tubbs. I really do uh, am thankful for all of the people who have kicked in a subscription through either Substack or Patreon. Just so you know, if you do contribute through Substack, the company Ting will match that amount of your first payment, which is excellent because uh, it really helps us all out. Uh, there is also a link in the newsletter to some deals where you can get your second month for free, uh, plus uh, potentially some gift cards. Look at the details at the bottom of the newsletter, which is something I would also like if you could please send that on to somebody else so that they could uh, potentially benefit from the information. Uh, every single installment of Charlottesville Community Engagement is uh, intended to get you information that you might not have known otherwise because it might not have been put together by anybody. Um, my, my hope is to gather as much information and present it in as clear and transparent a manner as possible. Please let me know what you think. I'm Sean Tubbs, the host. I'll be back tomorrow with another installment. In the meantime, stay safe and thanks for listening. Thank you.